0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'll be answering your questions about masturbation and why herpes is still getting a bad rap, even though they're really not that big a deal. Trust me, I'm a doctor. of philosophy, not a medical doctor, but still, you know, trust me on this. I'll also be sharing my interview with my neighbor from the South and sexual health educator, Jackie Hoshing, and we'll be talking about sex ed in Canada versus the US, and really, how they measure up. Just as a heads up, listeners, I am currently sitting inside the camper van that Levi and I have been living in for the last two weeks, and so if you hear the sounds of motorcycles and cars, ah, there's one. one, oh, there's another one. I have tried to record around them, but if you hear some sounds of traffic, my apologies. Hopefully, I will be back in an apartment soon without all that annoying background noise. And now, back to the show. And a large garbage truck. But first, today in sex. If you've been listening to the news lately, you've heard about Trump's threats to ban TikTok from the U.S. Apparently, using TikTok will give your private information directly into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. What does this have to do with sex? First off, most people who use TikTok are under the age of 25, and that is a hugely influential time in our sexual growth and our understanding of self. And before TikTok put in a bunch of new safety and privacy measures, it was literally called a pedophile paradise. In one article I read, John Carr, who's one of the UK's leading experts on child online safety, said, and I quote, There's no question an app like this is a magnet for pedophiles. When a young girl dances in skimpy clothes or imitates sexy dances, you're sure to find people in the comments either asking them to continue making these kinds of videos, saying they're sexy, or asking for their Snapchat or DM. Some of these girls are not even 11 years old. So this is not to slut shame anyone who is making these videos. It is your body, and regardless of how you dress or you dance, it doesn't mean that you're asking for it or inviting pedophiles to watch your videos. TikTok now has the family safety mode that has mitigated a lot of these concerns, but I wonder how the app overall affects our sense of self and when we are presenting these online versions of ourselves that can sometimes be really hypersexualized. Research has told us that social media platforms, they, they offer a place for connection and a curation of identity that is affecting young people and their sexuality in really complex ways by sharing videos and pictures that are trying to reflect, you know, popular depictions of ideal bodies. Ideal, I've put in little bunny ears here. It's creating an environment of really intense body consciousness. So people start feeling inadequate, they judge themselves and compare their bodies to others and what is supposed to be normal, acceptable, and desirable. And this isn't just for folks with vulvas, this is everyone. Research has even shown that these comparisons can lead to body shame and lower sexual assertiveness, meaning that you have some comfort and confidence to really communicate clearly about what your sexual desires are and how you want to feel pleasure. So even if it feels mindless and are scrolling through TikTok, and don't get me wrong, it can be really fun and really funny, but we may just be feeling worse and worse about our bodies. This is where my concern lies. When you're putting yourself online, which I do almost every day, you're opening yourself up to the comments and criticisms of the world, a world that unfortunately values a very narrow ideal of beauty and sexiness that can totally impact how you see yourself. I'm not saying don't use TikTok because a lot of it is is—it's really funny, but maybe take it with a grain of salt and know that you and your body are sexy just the way you are. And now let's get to your calls.
1: Hi, Liam, how are you? I am from Mexico, so I'm sorry for my English. I am 20 years old and I have a problem with masturbation. Every time that I do it, I feel so guilty and ashamed and dirty. I think I do it a lot, like 5 or 6 days a week. A few years ago, I quit
0: porn. It made me feel worse and it was a huge deal for me. But in the past months, I started looking at pictures in Instagram or reading some kinky stories. I don't like feeling this way. Please help me. I know it is normal and healthy to masturbate, but I don't feel that way. So what can I do not feel this way? How many times should I
1: masturbate? Please don't say that it depends. Thank you for your show. I love it. Bye.
0: My initial response is, how do you feel after you've orgasmed? Do you feel happy or a sense of relief or even release? I'm wondering if it's quickly replaced with feelings of shame, even though what's happening in your body hormonally, like after we orgasm, indicates that we really should feel great afterwards. But what is really going on is that a connection has been made in your mind that masturbating is dirty or shameful. Our brains are the most important sex organ. It cannot be said enough because even when we have a truly pleasurable experience, how we understand, value, and make sense of those experiences in our minds is going to dictate how we feel about that experience. So I'm not going to tell you how many times a day, a week, etc. that you should masturbate. You could Google that if you want. But... You also told me I couldn't say, it depends. It does, but way more important than the number of times is, one, how is it impacting your life? And two, how do you feel about the experience? If you are masturbating at every opportunity you get and it's impeding how you live your life or it's holding you back from other activities, then yeah, it's becoming a problem. But the majority of the time, it'll come in waves. And sometimes you'll want to masturbate a lot and sometimes you won't. If you're watching porn or reading fantasy, especially if it is ethically made, you know, where it isn't totally degrading to people with vulvas and the actors are fairly compensated for their work, then that might help you feel better about masturbating because you're doing it for a good cause and you're supporting people. But to my second point, how you feel about the experience is so important. And quite honestly, it might take you a long time to unpack why you feel this guilt and shame and to start reframing masturbation and pleasure as a positive experience. I believe that if more people masturbated more frequently, we would probably be happier and less stressed. Taking time for pleasure in a world that is demanding that we we do more, we achieve more, produce more, it's actually kind of a radical act. Your feelings of shame and guilt are probably from how you were socialized in the world, meaning that the values that you were raised with, if there was any religious shame about sex in your childhood and youth, and even now and how you understand yourself and how you see the world. Unfortunately, we all have to deal with feelings of shame because for centuries, society has found ways to police our sexuality and bodies and how we should feel about it. So you are in for a journey, but I'm going to recommend one book for you to read. It's called Sex, the second edition, the all-you-need-to-know sexuality guide to get you through your teens and 20s by Heather Carina. If you're not into reading the whole book, but I would highly recommend it because I'm actually in the process of reading it now for my sexual health educator training, you can check out her website, Scarletine, and there are some great articles specifically about masturbating. In fact, in the article that Heather writes, many people who masturbate regularly are often better sex partners when they are having sex with others. Of course, I have left a link to Scarlatine and to the book itself in the episode description, so go check that out. Now, my last comment is that right now in particular, you know, because we're in a pandemic, that the safest sex partner is yourself. It'll take some work to change that wiring in your mind about masturbation, but I hope that knowing that 95% of people masturbate and that it can make you a better lover helps you on that journey. Also, I found this article on Mashable that gives you the breakdown on ethical porn sites with free and paid options, so of course, the link is in the episode description. Let's get to the next call. Hi Leah, so I my question is about genital herpes. Um, I've had this diagnosis for about 10 years, and I feel extremely anxious about telling new partners because I've had some bad reactions and painful rejections due to the social stigma with herpes. And I'm wondering if you can give some advice on the best way to communicate um, this diagnosis to new partners and how to just feel better about it. I find that the stigma is so much worse than the actual symptoms.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: I actually received a written question about genital herpes as well as this recorded one. So I'm going to try to answer them both together. The written question is actually very similar. I'm just going to read a part of it now. I was diagnosed with HSV-2 when I was 16, and it was really difficult to cope with for a long time. People crack jokes about having herpes, and I had zero confidence sexually for a long time. STIs are a serious thing. People should always use protective measures. But I think there's a lot of stigma and shame that come with it that is unnecessary. It may prevent people from talking to their partners about it and hide their STI. Luckily, I found a partner who accepts it and looks past it. I think it'd be nice to hear someone talk about it on a public platform. Caller. That's what I'm gonna do right now. So, HSV2, or herpes simplex virus 2, is far more common than you think, isn't a serious health threat, and yet is still so highly stigmatized. I found this great article on Slate by L.V. Anderson called How Herpes Became a Sexual Boogeyman, which breaks down why herpes got such a bad rap and what we can do to educate ourselves that go beyond all the myths. As the article starts, if you are an American between the ages of 14 and 49 reading this, there is a decent chance that you have genital herpes and don't know it. About 11.9% of Americans in that range have herpes simplex virus 2, or HSV2, the kind most commonly associated with genital outbreaks, and most of them, more than 4 and 5 by some estimates, have no idea. Anderson says that for the people who do have symptoms from genital herpes, they're generally no worse than, well, cold sores, only they're not on your face. Genital herpes only causes complications in people with compromised immune systems, and when it does, they're usually treatable. In short, herpes simplex is a common, generally harmless skin condition that happens sometimes to be spread sexually. Now, here's a brief history of why genital herpes is still so wrapped up in shame, and this is according to Anderson. Now, in the first half of the 20th century, genital herpes was not on the public radar, and it wasn't even recognized as a discrete type of herpes infection until the 1960s. But by the 1980s, it was slapped on the cover of Time with headlines like, Herpes, the new sexual leprosy. What happened in the intervening years shows how a public sex panic is made. What's still happening, herpes, shame, fear, and confusion even now, shows how that panic can morph and persist. One of the oddest subplots of the stigma's endurance has to do with who's been falsely blamed for making herpes a boogeyman in the first place, and that is drunk companies. Ah, drug companies, consistently telling us that there is something wrong with us and wanting to fix it with some miracle drug. For some reason, this is super common in terms of sexual dysfunction and sexually transmitted infections or STIs. Uh, By the way, the preferred term now is STIs instead of sexually transmitted diseases or STDs because the term infection is less stigmatized than the word disease. Also, infections can easily be treated and diseases, well, that's a whole other thing. Just as you say, caller, STIs often aren't a big deal, and a lot of people don't even know they have them. We don't shame people for getting a cold or having a fever, so why is it so different when it comes to sex? Now, A lot of my research has actually been about the rising rates of STIs among older adults or folks 50 and older in North America, and these rates are showing us that older adults they didn't have the proper tools to learn about sex and how to talk about it, and really, we aren't doing a whole lot better now. As I mentioned back in episode 4, maybe COVID-19 and talking about our health status, that might pave the way for us to have clear communication about STIs and whether or not we're being tested. In full honesty, when Levi and I started dating, we both got tested because we had had sexual partners before getting together. It was actually the first time I had openly talked to a partner about it, and I'm really glad we did because it laid the groundwork for us to have better communication. And even now, six years later, Our communication about our relationship and our sexuality is way more open than it would have been because we started with that initial conversation. Now to the caller who sent in their written question, I'm really glad that you have a partner who isn't steeped in this unnecessary shame. And I hope that this will become more common because it's the stigma that's holding us back and not the actual implications of the STI. Now I'm not saying don't take STI seriously and don't use barrier methods such as internal external condoms. But if we're going to have sex with someone, shouldn't we be able to communicate with them, too? I highly recommend reading the article, which I have linked in the episode description, because it is full of great information and shows us how some really bad publicity in the 70s and 80s is still haunting us today over 40 years later. As Anderson finishes the article, we can begin to free ourselves from the stories people told about herpes in the 70s and 80s and start telling one another new stories about herpes instead. Stories about how common it is, how trivial it usually is, how it should be least among your fears when you have sex. Also, there was a great article taught. Holy Hannah! It's a busy place. Also, there is a great article called How to Talk About Sex. And there was a whole section called Talking About STIs is Part of Owning Your Sexual Health. A lot of us pride ourselves on being sex positive and inclusive, but is that extending to our own understanding of STIs? I highly recommend reading this article. It's a short read and has a ton of information not only about STIs, but about partner communication and consent. I'll say as well that academic research has been conducted about the psychological effects of herpes and how it can affect the quality of life for folks with vulvas. The article is called Psychological Adjustment Among Women Living with Genital Herpes, and I have it linked in the episode description. Essentially, the stigma around herpes and the continued misinformation about it is affecting how the women in this study perceive themselves and how coping mechanisms play a central role in perceived quality of life. As the researchers state, use of acceptance coping was associated with better quality of life, while use of denial coping was related to poor quality of life. The authors also cite one of my favorite theorists, yes, I'm a nerd, I know this, Irving Goffin, who writes a lot about stigma. So in Goffman's 1963 theory of stigmatized individuals, he posits that individuals with stigmatized conditions can experience many negative consequences of people's reactions. For the women in the present study, perceived herpes stigma had a strong association with quality of life. Really, it all comes back to stigma and feelings of shame that influence our sexual experiences and our self-esteem. One of the best things we can do to combat stigma is to educate ourselves and to support each other. We don't have to have the exact same experiences to empathize with each other and find ways to reach out and support one another. Now, of course, because I've done so much research, if you're looking for a shorter, less academic read about the stigma of genital herpes, there's one more article linked in the episode description called Addressing the Consequences of Herpes Stigma that I highly recommend. Now that I've shared a ton of information about the stigma, what does this mean about communicating with new partners? Well, knowledge is power. Being able to tell someone that herpes is not a big deal and that actually a lot of people have it without even knowing is a first step. As I mentioned in my own experience, starting a relationship with getting tested just to make sure you're both on the same page is definitely a bit scary and and it makes you vulnerable, but it puts you in a way better position to have more positive communication with a new partner. And use the exact language that you just used with me, caller. The stigma is way worse than the symptoms, and actually, it's way safer having a sexual relationship with you, someone who knows their health status, than someone who doesn't think they have it, but they actually have no idea, and and probably do have it. I'm so sorry that you've experienced painful rejections before, and that is those people telling you right away that they're not going to be good partners or lovers. I mentioned in a previous episode that if someone responds badly to you being open and honest with them then they are showing you that they do not deserve to be with you. You need to find someone who's actually worth your time. I'm sorry that the stigma is getting in the way of that, but already the way that you talk so openly and clearly about it, I think you're on the right path, and I really hope that this helps. Now I am delighted to share my interview with my neighbor from the South, and I'm in the Deep South in Texas. Uh, My apologies, Jackie. Uh, Obviously, I don't think you talk like this in Texas. Is that how Texas? Uh, Anyway, Jackie Hoshing. Jackie is a sexual health educator. And for all of my listeners from the U.S., you might just learn a thing or two about the sex ed you received in school. So here it is. So hi, how are you?
1: Good, good. It's Friday. Um, It's very hot. I don't know, 100 and something degrees. I don't
0: know how many that is in Celsius. Oh, gosh, I don't know. Here it's been just like thunderstorm like almost every day it's been like rain thunderstorm we're like what what's happening here
1: yeah yeah it's really hot and there was like we were thinking they were going to shut down the state but then the governor was like no we're not going to shut down the state oh geez <sighs> which it, from the
0: sounds of it it sounds like that might actually be the best option is to just I mean, yeah. shut things down like go on lockdown for a bit just to try and get some more. yeah right? A little bit more like, hey, social distancing and masks. Maybe that's something that we could put into play. Mm -hmm. Oh dear. And
1: there's so many many things in common between wearing masks and putting on condoms. Like I've been reading more and more about like the struggles that healthcare professionals are telling people to use masks or just like, you know, people in general saying wear masks are the same struggles that I've had to tell people to use condoms.
0: Definitely. Um,
1: Because you really don't I want to shame them
0: but now it's like at this point you don't want to die you're like huh? right yeah. i was talking to a friend of mine about like COVID 19 and like dating and how is that going to change things and i'm like well maybe this will help us talk about like stis and condom use a bit better yeah. because now we're it's a part of our dialogue now to talk yeah. about health so if you say oh like have you been tested i'm like imagine if it was that normal to talk about that about having you know getting tested for STIs or something and but yeah you can see it's totally that social thing people are like well, I don't want to put a mask on i wonder yeah. if that's like a thing especially in the states around like personal freedoms you just have to wear a mask that's just kind of you just do it cuz that's what you're yeah. supposed to do
1: so hopefully it is interesting like and also how the different states are handling it mm-hmm. like who's opening and who's not opening California was really good in the beginning. And then I think they reopened a little too early.
0: Yeah. And, and now, now they're now, just like.
1: Like, oh. if you look at them, there's a map, I think, somewhere on in the internet of mm-hmm. all the states that have the highest surges. Florida, which my roommate is from Florida. So he really oh, doesn't okay. like when I'm like, oh, Florida. But Florida is really bad. They've yeah. have been to Disneyland. Or sorry, Disney World.
0: But it's like, what? And there's so really? many older adults who live in Florida. I'm like. Okay. This is not good. Like, why Why okay. is this happening? Oh, no. They still
1: aren't requiring masks in Florida.
0: Oh, dear. So, like, do you want to introduce kind of what's your job, kind of what's your role? And then maybe okay. let's talk about how, how has COVID-19, like, changed that? Like, how has that altered okay. how you do your work?
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm a community health educator and... I go out, well, before COVID, I used to, you know, go out and do presentations about birth control, STI prevention, healthy relationships, Mm -hmm. and a lot about consent. And now it's been a little bit more difficult because all the Mm -hmm. schools went online and a lot of the schools weren't prepared. So there's the digital gap or divide Mm -hmm. in my area, which is a problem too, for maybe some of the high schools that I would present to because some students might not have access to stable internet. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the school districts are helping with that, but there's just a lot of like so many barriers for folks in general to get an education. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, on top of that, it's um, the digital divide and five generations of people living in one area, like one house, you know, grandparents, your parents, and then you, Mm -hmm. and then one person's working and then the other person has to stay home they're going to college and then taking care of their siblings. So they don't necessarily wow. have the time to like hop on a call yeah. to, or like a presentation about birth control. Right. Cause they're like, I don't have time to, I don't, I want to learn about this, but I don't have time right now because I'm taking care of my siblings. Yeah, definitely. And Yeah. And that takes a toll on the rising number of cases, because if there's 10 people or eight people or six people living in the house, mm-hmm. you know, you can't control are going you can try to say don't leave the house but some people have to they have to go
0: to work yeah exactly yeah it's not an option to just and especially if you don't have internet access to your house which a lot of jobs now they're like oh work from home you're like well how many people live in your house do you have even a quiet space much less Mm -hmm. access to internet and really it's it's in a lot of ways it seems pretty elitist to be like oh like how i feel very fortunate that i can work from home
1: my area we have one of the highest uh poverty rates of, of texas right mm-hmm. so even if there was jobs to work at home we don't have a lot of people qualified to work from home right most people work in the service industry or the grocery stores or maids um, construction workers like very mm-hmm. low income positions so right. it's they don't have the option like you can't be a maid and work from home like yeah that's not really an option
0: definitely so. Have you found that to be a barrier? So when you were able to like physically go into schools, like how was that? Like kind of give me a um like a day in the life of, you know, you go into you go into yeah. a school and you do like a workshop or a presentation. Like what would that kind of roughly look like?
1: Yeah, so I've done really well in the past year to. connect with a lot of technical schools so Mm -hmm. technical schools are like the two-year colleges or certification schools i don't know if they have that in canada so it's like community college but shorter yeah so and a lot of them are privately owned but like big organizations Mm -hmm. so they have their own funding and everything there's different ones so for Mm -hmm. the nursing assistants or massage therapists i would go in and they'd be like oh we're learning about reproductive health Mm -hmm. can you come in and talk about birth control so i'll come in and Bring all my birth control methods. And I really like this going into the technical schools because they're a little bit older. They're in between, you know. Right. Um, high school kids and like in your twenties, right? They're like 21, 20, 19. So they have a right. lot of questions.
0: Right. And hopefully like less giggling overall. Cause like trying yeah, to have this conversation with teenagers. Giggling, they're still giggling. They're yeah. Still giggling, so, I think at yeah. any age there's just a bit of giggling. That nervous, yeah. like, <laughs> but nervous, like
1: I'm just like Penises, 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 whatever. No, I don't. But kind of, like, like, we get it out of the way in the beginning. Sometimes we just have to talk it through. And then the teacher's always in the back, like, when I'm like, what's the best form of birth control? And then the teacher, like, 95% of the time, abstinence, not having sex, don't have sex kids, because they just, they see so many of the students, like, they fall in love, or they find this cute person that they want to be with, mm-hmm. and they don't know about birth control. Yeah. Yeah. So they end up pregnant and they can't finish their two-year program or right. whatever program they're in. So we, I do mention abstinence, but it's not the only thing. You
0: know? Yeah, definitely. But you can see maybe from like a teacher's perspective, they're like, we just really want you to graduate. We want you to be successful in this program. Yeah. But like you said, it's so helpful to have like a professional to come in and facilitate that conversation because also you get to have that bit of... You don't see them every single day, which is mm-hmm. nice. So that you, they can yeah. kind of be a bit more like free or ask those questions. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, I was kind of doing a bit of research. So there's like comprehensive sexual health education. But then there's also like abstinence only education. Yeah. And are those still like the two main kind of overarching like methods of sexual health education? Yeah.
1: In Texas, we do abstinence plus. So okay. the basis, you have to talk like 70%, 80%. Abstinence, We have to mention it a lot if we're talking in public schools. Right. And then we can talk about birth control. We're not allowed to use do a condom demonstration in Texas public schools, hmm. which I don't know about other public schools. I think California is comprehensive sex education. And comprehensive sex education is so more comprehensive. Like, right. I don't want to say it's better, but it ranges from the time a kid starts elementary school. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people freak out, like, oh, sex education in elementary school. No, it's just teaching kid saying good touch bad touch Mm -hmm. what their like sexual parts are so if if someone touches you know your son's penis Mm -hmm. like he can say hey someone touched my penis and that wasn't right and they have the ability to say their boundaries and consent to what is right and wrong because they know what's right and wrong instead of saying oh you touched my woohoo like, yeah. What's a like
0: yeah. yeah, you're like, you don't know, like, it could be like, yeah. your elbow, is it your shoulder? Right. And I and it's, it is a similar thing in Canada. I mean, it's different from province to province and territory to territory. And I'm sure it is similar from across state to state. But we have some like preliminary conversations about boundaries. And like you said, having the proper language for your body parts, like a lot of that starts in elementary school. It's so interesting that in public schools, there is still this where it's like okay well we can talk about these things we can't talk about this and interesting how in terms of you know abstinence plus it has to be okay once we reach this threshold of talking about abstinence then i can give you this information but i have to like meet this standard first yeah how have you like found that has that been like something that now it's a part of your routine you can kind of get there or do you find yourself trying to like work around it
1: it's a part of my routine and also i find I go into high schools, it's easier to pitch. I'm going to talk about healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. And at the end, can I just give me two minutes to talk about the services at our clinic? That doesn't mean your students are going to use our services. But if you want me to come in, because a lot of teachers need, you know, want speakers to come in to talk about healthy relationships, mm-hmm. talk about consent, talk about birth control. But not, but the school board or the principal is like, no, we're not comfortable with birth, birth control or SDIs right? Mm-hmm. But you can talk about healthy relationships. Right. So that's how I kind of... You
0: can like frame it that way. I think that's a lot of, you know, our curriculum here as well. It's like, oh, we're going to start talking about healthy relationships because I think they're worried about like what's going to happen with, with parents as well. Like we actually have that option for parents to opt out and they can say, oh yeah, like I don't want my kid to receive this kind of healthy sexuality education. But what I found really interesting is there's a difference though, in what parents cannot opt their students out of their kids out of. So one of the things as I'm not sure what it's like across Canada, but in in British Columbia, where I live, if it's related to human rights, then you're allowed to talk about it in the schools. So if you're talking about like sexual orientation and gender expression, like those are people's like, rights and they have rights underneath like human rights charters and things like that and like code of conduct. So there's a way for, I think, teachers and then for community educators to be like, well, this is actually a part of our laws and our rights. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to be able to talk about it, but I don't have to necessarily talk about sexual health. So it's always interesting how sexual health is still so taboo, but we're getting more and more creative about how... We talk about it because you want you want students and you want people of any age to have this education, yeah. to have these resources, but it's the institutions which they're in, which makes it really hard to yeah. get the full information.
1: And right now, the Texas State Board of Education, the ones who decide what textbooks we use in Texas, they're in discussion about how we're going to update our sex ed.
0: Amazing. I um,
1: know. <gasps> so I don't know what's happening with COVID, but there's two, a couple different organizations pushing for more comprehensive sex education and it's really important because texas is one of the largest buyers of textbooks in the united states so if we buy hypothetically a math book right then other states would be like oh they bought the math book it must be good so they end up buying so we try to update and make sure we get the best textbooks so hopefully with sex education they update and it's good
0: Yeah. Well, that can become like the spark for change. And really smart that if you know that your state has that kind of sway over what other states are going to do, like that's excellent. You have this comprehensive sexual education, either curriculum or textbook. That's awesome. And what a unique way to kind of get people. It's not like writing a policy. It's like, well, this is a textbook. And because we order so many, oh, maybe other people will want to order them or maybe they'll be subsidized.
1: It's good if we pick the best textbooks, but because we're a conservative state and there's not much you need to do to become part of the Texas State Board of Education, you don't have to be an educator.
0: Oh, really? You just have to
1: be living in Texas for a couple of years and over the age of 25 and live in whatever area you are. So anyone can, I could run to be part of the Texas State Board of Education.
0: Interesting. Oh, what I was also wondering is so I know if you have to start with. You know, abstinence plus. So, basically, like you said, mainly abstinence, and you can build from there. I'm wondering, does like pleasure or like intimacy, does any of that come into it at all? Judging by your face, not really. <laughs>
1: not really. Um. So we, I live in a very conservative area. We mm-hmm. vote blue a lot, um, right? As in we vote, we vote very, we vote Democratic, mm-hmm. a lot, which you would think, um yeah, but that it's, it's, but we're still very conservative. Texas right. is still very conservative. So if I can go in and talk about healthy relationships and birth control, like it's like we don't really want to push it, right?
0: Mm, right, yeah. yeah.
1: This is actually interesting story. A mm-hmm. kid was doing a project for one of the college prep high schools Mm-kay. this past spring, and she said, oh, my project's on sex ed in, in schools. Can you come in and talk about birth control anatomy? everything because we didn't mm-hmm. learn any of this right and I said sure send her the slides these are mm-hmm. all from accredited sources mm-hmm. the anatomy is from accredited sources the principal said no because the female anatomy was just too graphic and it wasn't really it was just this was the female anatomy
0: this is, could these be a the part clarts. of a biology class this
1: is the clitoris
0: it's not like you're making up the clitoris to be like, oh, I'm not talking about pleasure. You're like, no, it, biologically, it exists. Look, there it is. This
1: it and it's right there, and that's the main purpose of it. Mm-hmm. So we ended up not doing the project. And oh. she really was pushing for me to do this with her. And I mean, the amount of work we put in to put this together it was a lot, and it yeah. ended up not happening. And then COVID happened, and it was
0: like, a- oh. Oh, so, and that's so frustrating. I can imagine Right? Frustrating when you, like you said, you put in all of that work and you have a student who's clearly like interested and passionate about it being like, I don't have this information. And they reach out to someone being like, I I want to have access. And like the school board or principal or whatever kind of shutting it down. And I feel like, I mean, that happens in Canada too. But it's it's just so interesting how even if like one person says no, like you said, if you have one student who tells their parents like, oh, I learned about this today. Then you have angry parents on your hands where it's like, would you prefer they didn't have this information? And then that's, you know,
1: teen pregnancy. That's yeah, STIs. one of the highest rates in Texas, yeah. Right. I don't know if we're number one or two anymore because I don't know what the numbers are off the top of my head, but we are at least top 10 in the
0: state right. of yeah.
1: teen pregnancies. And then in my area, we have the high one of the highest repeat teen pregnancies. We right. do have some schools that have actual schools for, for teen mothers and parents because um, their boyfriends can, or partners, if they're going to school, can go to school with them okay. to help them. Yeah. So it's a school just for, for teen parents.
0: Right. Right. To have those resources. I actually did a, um, I've done a decent amount of projects at a, at a school in Victoria. It's very similar. And it's a school that's for a lot of it for teen moms but then also for a lot of like gender diverse folks and folks that haven't really succeeded in the public school system and hasn't really been designed for them Mm -hmm. to succeed. Mm -hmm. So it's this alternative program. And I remember I went in and did this whole workshop about sexual health, but using theater to talk about it. And I was so nervous because these students were so woke. And I felt like, you know, I had, I had, Done my work, but at the same time, I'm like, who am I? Like, and, and, you know, very aware of the fact that, like, I'm coming as a representative of the university. So I'm coming from this total place of privilege to be like, Hey, let's talk about sex and using theater. And they're all like, who is this dork who's coming? <laughs> they, they enjoyed it by the end. I think that's one of the things that I try and do, like, as a facilitator myself is to try and make myself look as, like, approachable, but also, like, if I'm going to ask people to do something, like silly, like I will do it first and like totally elaborately so that whatever they do, it's like a nothing in comparison. So I'm just trying to like hold that space. What I'm wondering too is what is the question that you get asked most often? Is there like one mm-hmm. that really sticks out or is there like a couple? Yeah.
1: One is this. What if I use two condoms instead
0: of one? <sighs> oh dear. And
1: I know sometimes it's just to see what my facial expression would be mm-hmm. just like, no, just no. It's a waste of two condoms. Use one right? and you're good. Don't, don't be using two. Oh my and then gosh. there's a lot of like, how effective are any of the birth control methods? Mm. So like my girlfriend's on this or I, my cousin's best friend's aunt had the IUD and it fell out of her vagina, something like that. Like right. everyone has someone, someone, someone who was using something and they either got pregnant or it just didn't work or mm-hmm. like they gained a bunch of weight. And so I just have to debunk it depending on the birth control methods. So yeah, definitely. The, the, the two condoms one,
0: definitely. It's like- I feel like I even remember like when I, so in, in across Canada, been in BC, like our sexual health education is like rolled into part of like our physical education and like planning or whatever. I still, I think I remember one of the students in the class asking that, like, so wouldn't two condoms be better than one condom? I'm like, like, even at the age of like 15, I was like, no, like, dude, that's not how it works. And I'm like, why do I have to know this? I don't have a penis. Why do I like, I know this and you don't? It's like, oh my gosh, so sad. What I'm wondering too is you probably, you see so many different people in a, in a, Day and so many in the, across your community. But if there was like one piece of like information or advice that you just wish everyone, if they didn't get anything else from the lecture, they only got one thing, what thing would you want them to, to walk away with?
1: It's okay to have a conversation about sex with the trusted adults that you feel comfortable with. So it's either you give us a call at the clinic. And say, hey, I'm really worried that I have an STI or I, you know, I have bad cramps. I'd like some birth control. What are my birth control options? Like Mm -hmm. talking about sex is really talking about your future because sex is is so, it's such an integral part of your life. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't have sex right now, you might have sex in the next five years, 10 years. You might be asexual and never have sex, but it's good to know that if you have a uterus, you need to get a pap smear after you're 21. You know, Mm -hmm. you need to just check for, for abnormal cells in your cervix. Like, it's just good to know because it's, it's part of your health. Like your a normal physical exam, like sex mm-hmm. is not a scary taboo thing. Cause I know in a lot of, in my community, it's sometimes a very, like we don't talk about that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, but it's, it's right. okay because it's just part of your health. It's-
0: yeah. To lump that in. I think that's great. How you frame that of, you know, it's, it's sex is a part of your future, you know? And of course, for each person, that's going to be very different about what that looks like and what that means to them. But regardless, we're all sexual beings and we'll have some sort of understanding of sexuality or some sort of sexual something will happen in our lives, either to us or that we'll witness or whichever. And so having those conversations, I think you're right. I guess trying to equip people to be prepared to have these conversations Right. Would be a huge yeah. part of that. And
1: it's, it's the, and like, even if you never have sex for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. that's cool. But if your best friend is having sex or someone in your life is having sex and they come to you and said, oh, I was having sex with, with my partner. And during in the middle of sex, they decided to take off the condom. And I felt really uncomfortable, but I didn't know how to tell them, hey, you know, that's not cool. Mm hmm. Like, we need to use the condom throughout the whole time we have sex because yeah. this isn't what I'm cool with. Because, you know, when we see so much in um, pop culture about sex, we only see the beginning part of, like, oh, let's have sex. And then mm-hmm. at the end, when they're all like, oh, there's, like, yeah, in the middle, there's a lot of gray area where there's there should be conversation. And it's okay to stop and say, hey, you know, I know I greenlighted this. I said this was cool, but this isn't cool. Like, mm-hmm like either put on the condom or we're not going to do this. And we have to be empowered to say no and be empowered to tell our friends like, hey, you have the right to to say yes or no to something if you're uncomfortable.
0: I like how you frame that in terms of it's that gray area. I think that that gray area where you frame it, I think that's where like boundaries can get crossed, you know, and that's where things can happen that sometimes you don't know it's going to be uncomfortable. Or like you said, like you've green lighted it. And then now that you're in this moment, you don't want to happen anymore and yeah. yeah, trying to, to be okay and be comfortable talking about that gray area before you're actually in that area yourself, I think is a yeah. huge, a huge part of yeah.
1: that. And I, I um, did a, like a pod like something similar to this like Mm -hmm. a video um, conversation with someone from the university last week of sex in the time of covid Mm. and when we were talking and I was pitching the idea of what we were going to talk about we thought this would be great because you know it's timely and everything and Mm -hmm. I was like just don't have sex with, with people that you don't know that you don't live with but if you do this is what you do but um I do say there's like some questions you should ask before sex anyways right Mm -hmm. like what are you comfortable with and what are you not comfortable with and you should find out also what the person is comfortable with and not comfortable with Mm -hmm. and i know sometimes it's a little unrealistic to assume that everyone's going to ask the list of questions like how many partners are you sleeping with right now Mm -hmm. right when's the last time you got tested for stds or covid yeah you know Yeah. So these are like, I, but I think now is the best time to have these conversations because you're going to have to have a lot of conversations before you meet anyways. So just slip them in. Like, yeah. What are we, are we, is this a one time thing? Is it, are we willing to risk both of us maybe getting COVID for Mm -hmm. this one time of having sex? Yeah. Not to shame hookups, but right now it's a very scary time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. we still don't really know Besides being in the same room with someone, how COVID is transmitted. Like, it, it could be transmitted through semen. And, mm-hmm. like, things are changing.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. and the research is... It's
1: all those articles. Like,
0: yeah. It keeps evolving. some are like, oh, it can be transmitted through semen. But then the thing is, too, is, like, basically, if you're close enough to have sex with someone, yeah. you're close enough to get COVID. So, it's like, well, yeah. uh, most likely, they'll at least breathe on you, if not more, during this experience.
1: Yeah. Unless you're both wearing masks. Yeah. And it's just, you have to do a lot of things. Like if you do decide to have sex, like take a shower when you get in to the person's house Mm -hmm. and then wear a mask. But there's so many other things you can do. And sex, sometimes it's just a conversation of a penis and a vagina, but sex is, is like a spectrum of different things, Mm -hmm. you know, between two folks, three folks, one folk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's actually become one of my favorite like words. I love the word folks. At first I was like, I always said, hey guys, when I would come into a room and now I'm like, oh, I really like folks. There's something about it that feels, um, I don't know, kind of cozy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I
1: say folks a lot as like a gender neutral term. Mm-hmm. Y'all, because I'm
0: Texan. Y'all, of course. So,
1: like,
0: People would look at me funny if I did that here. They're like, uh, yeah. you're from Vancouver Island. Yeah, that's great. Okay, I have one little section that I've like prepared. And I so it's like a, it's like a little quiz. So it's like, but no, no, it'll be super funny. Don't worry, don't worry. To people listening, I did not prep Jackie for this. I just like wrote up a few things. But what I was gonna do is one of them is a true or false question, and the other ones are like, which country did this? Canada or the U.S.? Right? Yeah. So I think I think you'll like it. Right? Okay. Do you want to? Do you want me to start with the? Okay, I'll start with the first one I have here. Okay, so. Which country recently approved Nexplanon, a birth control implant that's placed in your arm?
1: United, Canada.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's Canada. The United States has had it for like Canada way prefer, longer. Yeah. We just got it in May of this year.
1: What?
0: May of 2020. I was like, what? Isn't that crazy? I was like, come that on, Canada. For like, we're like, oh, we're so progressive. I'm like, mm, but are we? Right? Hmm. Okay. Uh, second question. STI testing is free in which country?
1: Canada.
0: Yeah, I mean, free healthcare. It's it's yeah. pretty great. Even STIs, though. However, okay, so this is a true or false question. In Texas, people under the age of eighteen can get tested for an STI without parents or guardians' knowledge. True or false? True. Yes, I found that out, and I was so pleased.
1: Yeah, that's under the Title Ten, of the Reagan program under title
0: 10 which is makes so much sense that it's like yeah like if you want to take down those barriers instead of putting them up to get people tested a lot of the time yeah it's fear of telling your parents or your guardians and them you know stopping you from yeah. seeing this person or whichever else right like i thought that was very cool i was like yay well done texas <laughs> okay and which country has a unified approach to sex ed across every state, province, territory? Is
1: it Canada?
0: No, actually, none of them do. Neither Canada. of them do. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's a trick question. That's a know, trick right? question. <laughs> Canada, <laughs> true question. Uh, province to province. Yeah, I'm like province to province, state to state. I tried to make it like it could be, but like it's. I found that really interesting as well as looking into it. So state to state, and then in Canada, province to province or territory to territory. It's totally different because our education systems are based, you know, not federally, but provincially and territorially. So I was like, oh, okay, so we have some guidelines of what we have to talk about. And I'm sure it's probably similar through like Mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood or something like that. There's rules about what you can talk about, but nothing unified. So you think about folks from, you know, even from one community to another or one state to another, totally different education. I think that's good. Is there anything else you're thinking you want to, like, share, talk about?
1: I know that COVID is happening right now. Mm -hmm. So, if you are going to have sex, use a condom. But I would recommend not meeting up with someone. Right. So, my final thoughts are get to know the other person. Mm -hmm. Don't mean to sound like a corny sex educator.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Get to know them.
1: Get to know the person, right? During that month, if you're worried you have an STI and you have to get tested, right? Mm-hmm. Get to know someone. Get mm-hmm. to know yourself. Realize you don't like that person. Yeah. And then...
0: A lot can happen in a month. So yeah, a, a lot, lot of... can
1: happen in a month. Totally. So similar to, to that, like, get to know yourself. Get to know the person before you have sex. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today and listening to the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of The Love Doctor, I'll be talking to the brilliant Emily Percival Patterson about their research on trans birth care in Canada and the insane pressure a lot of us face to have children. If you have any questions that you want to ask, send a voice memo to Podcast at gmail.com, and I will do my darndest to get it on the show. You can also check me out on Instagram or Twitter, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review. Tell them folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.